KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. You're listening to Erev Shabbat program with your host, Jonathan Snowbell. This Erev Shabbat, Kaf Hei Shvat, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parshat Mishpatim, also Shabbat Mavachim, Rav Rosh Chodesh Adar Rishon. Here in Alon Shvut in Gush Etzion, we are in the midst of a snowstorm. The snowflakes are hitting gently on the windows. And in that cozy avira of being indoors and looking outside and enjoying the weather, thinking about the weather, I'd like to go into this this week's Arab Shabbat program with thoughts on, on, on that relate to the snow and the weather and to the things around us. In this week's Parsha, Parshat Mishpatim, I think there are two psukim or sets of psukim that I'd just like to touch on just mention them as a jumping off block for our discussion this week in this week's Parsha of course we're introduced to the idea of Shemitah in Parak Hafgimel Pasuk Yud Shanim Tizra Et Artsecha Ve'asavta Et Tibuata Ve'ashvi'it Tishmetena Untashta Ve'achlu Avyonei Amecha Ve'itram Tochal Chayat Asel Ken Ta'asel Charmacha Lezeitecha for six years, you'll sow your, the land and collect the produce. And on the seventh year, you will abandon the field and let the poor people of your nation eat it and the animals will eat it. And so you will do in your vineyards and with your olive trees. So we have the idea of Shemitah. And the idea of Shemitah, in the way that the Torah presents it, is a, is a radical idea. Agriculturally, there is a, there's concepts even amongst non-Jewish and non-religious farmers that fields need to be left alone every once in a while to re-supply the nutrients to the soil. And this is, this is an idea which is, which is out there in agriculture. And in that sense, Shemitah is a, a wise idea. However, for everybody to not sow and not work the fields the exact same year across the entire country, of course, this is a problematic idea because it, of course, raises the question <coughs> of how do we survive without produce from the fields. So, of course, this, is, this problem is addressed in, in Sefer Vaikra in Harshat Behar, where Shemitah is discussed again there. And there... The Torah tells us, of course, that if we keep the Shemitah, then God will be sure to make that uh, there will be uh, produce, m- uh, plenty of produce on the sixth year to allow you to take, care, take through into the seventh year and into the eighth year, of course, until uh, produce can be, uh, can be made in the eighth year. Because, of course, at the beginning of the eighth year, there isn't going to be produce either. So, in that sense, we have a, a religious idea here that God will take care, of us, take care of us, seeing that we're keeping His mitzvot, His commandments. So clearly, we're not just taking care of the, the nutrients of the land, because if we were just taking the nutrients of the land, we could stagger the fields, and every year work a different field and rest a different field. But here we're resting all the fields simultaneously. On the simplest level in the psukim, we are giving a year for to make all people equal. The people who have lands, the people who don't have lands, 
are equally entitled to the, f- the produce in the fields. And of course, in the, in the simple comparison between Shemitah and Shabbat, in Shabbat we stop doing everything that we are usually doing and focus more on our relationship with God and with Kedusha, so too on a, on a much larger level, uh, a farmer who is not farming can, in the same sense of the sabbatical that exists in the teaching profession, go back to the Beit Midrash, learn, come closer to Hashem, not only on a, on a, a local level of that day of the week, but on a much grad, grander level of an entire year. And in that sense, all the, those ideas are ideas that we can identify with and, and understand. The, the problem comes when we try to identify with Shemitah today. Because here we are living in Eretz Yisrael, and most of us are not involved in agriculture, the vast majority of us. And so therefore, the possibility of not working or not doing our regular jobs is not an option we continue working, and, pre- and, the, and there is no prohibition for us to work. I, as a teacher, the next person is an accountant, the other person as a lawyer, it's permitted for us to work in our professions during the Shemitah year, there's no problem with it. So we lack um, being able to benefit from this free year. And we don't have fields, so the poor person and myself are not equal, don't have an equal opportunity to take the fruits from my field. What is left then in, in Shnat HaShemitah? <coughs> in Shnat HaShemitah, it's left to decide how we are going to keep Shnat HaShemitah, whether the farmers, the farmers are going to do Heter Mechira, and in that sense, not keep Shnat HaShemitah. In other words, there will be no significance to the Shemitah year in the sense of how they're going to farm their fields. Or whether there's going to be Otsar Beitin in my field, and then there will be much more of a presence of Shnat HaShemitah. There'll be the, the, the type of jobs that I'll be allowed to do in my field will be limited, type of work that I'll be able to do in my field will be limited, which uh, vegetables I will be dealing with for a limited amount of time, and then for the continuation of the year, I won't be dealing with them at all. For the most part now, those of us who have been Exclusively, whether exclusively or not exclusively, using Otsar Haaretz, Otsar Beitin, have uh, seen that pretty much the vegetables that have Ketushat Shvi'it, that are from lands that are Chayv and Shemitah, and therefore, uh, from pretty much most of the vegetables, the Isur of Svichin has kicked in. The Isur, the rabbinic prohibition of, of uh, eating at all any, any vegetables that grow during the Shemitah year. Without going into details, any vegetables that could have grown from the beginning of the Shemitah year were prohibited from, from eating. And, and then there's how to deal with the economics. All these are, are, are interesting ideas of the farmer. The individual who is not a farmer then has to decide what fruits and vegetables he'll be eating during the Shemitah year, according to which kashriot, whether he'll be eating heter mechira, and then pretty much all, he has all the options, whether he'll be eating outsar beitin, and then, and here things will get more complicated because essentially we can eat 
vegetables from the fields until a certain point of the year, and then we have to turn to other options for our vegetables. And that is whether it's lands in, in Eretz Yisrael today, but that I don't have Kedushat Haaretz for the, in, for the purpose of Mitzvot HaTluyot Ba'aretz, and therefore, like uh, lands in the Arava, where there the, the Hilchot Shemitah don't apply, and therefore we can grow vegetables regularly there, or other patents of growing vegetables, whether on tables, in greenhouses, both, not in the land, not on the land, pardon me, in, the, in Eretz Yisrael, but not on the land of Eretz Yisrael, and therefore solving uh, the problems of what vegetables to eat in that way. All in all, we might notice certain things on the shelves that are different. My, my diet hasn't tra- changed drastically this year. And in that sense, it's something that is an interesting issue to, to, to address, that the, the Isur of Svichin, as we see it, this prohibition of eating the vegetables during the Shemitah year, <coughs> is very telling of the diet that exists that existed in the time of Chazal in comparison to our diet today. Because if you're going to get by on a diet without vegetables, because you're living in Eretz Yisrael, when, in a time where they didn't have these patents of growing vegetables on tables, and they didn't have lands where they didn't have Kedushat Haaretz, and they weren't importing from Turkey, etc., etc. So the, the meaning of the prohibition of Svichin meant that they weren't eating vegetables for a large portion of the year. Now for us, vegetables are a, diet, are a staple in our diet, and it's almost unimaginable. And therefore, we do eat vegetables, and we use different patents, whether it's Heter Mechira, whether it's, as we said, fruit, vegetables that are not grown on the land, or vegetables that are grown in places in Eretz Yisrael that don't have Kedushat Haaretz, we eat our vegetables. But in the time of Chazal, <coughs> vegetables, like other fruits, were seasonal. And just like for me today, if someone told me I can't eat pineapple for a year, I won't be terribly upset because pineapple is a seasonal fruit and I eat it at a certain point of the year and the rest of the year I don't eat it. So if also for those two months that I do eat pineapple, I won't be able to eat the pineapple. It's not the end of the world. But cucumbers, I need my cucumbers all the time. Cucumbers in the time of Chazal were a seasonal vegetable. And to tell someone not to eat cucumbers wasn't the end of the world. The staple was grains, oil, wine, meat. Those were the staples. And those were available throughout. The grains we would collect from previous years, and they can stay for a very long time. And the other fruits and vegetables, as they came up, as when they were seasonal, we ate them, and when, when they weren't seasonal, they weren't eaten. All of this modern dealing with <coughs> the halakha that relates ultimately to an agricultural society brings us to, in my mind, a difficult question in our relationship with God. And this is where I come back to the weather, as I mentioned at the beginning. What relationship remains to us, who don't live in an agricultural society, when we pray for rain? 
When we pray for rain, when our crop doesn't depend on it, and even, frankly, our drinking water doesn't really depend on it because maybe it'll be a little bit more expensive, but if there's really a problem, we'll import water. And if for us, snow is just a fun thing, but snow is something that will destroy a crop that's in the field. So where is our relationship vis-a-vis what we pray for? Because today, the average kid, even the average parent perhaps, will really hope that there's snow. Where is our relationship with God when we're praying for these things? Where is our relationship with God in a week where en masse people started saying the additional prayer for for, for rain when on the, at the beginning of that week the people began to say it the weather forecasts forecasted rain a lot of rain and they were right and there was a lot of rain and there continues to be rain how strong is the person's prayer when the outcome is already foretold and I come to another pasuk. There won't be people who lose children, and there won't be people who are infertile in your land. I will fill, fill your years. You will live a long life. Here I'm touching on something that's a little bit more sensitive, because certainly people lose children, and there are infertile people as well, and there are people who live short lives. But in a world where we have medicine and we have ways of overcoming infertility and we have cures for a lot more illnesses than we used to and perhaps more than we turn to God we turn to medicine to solve these problems. Where does this leave our relationship with God? There are so many things that when we look at the Torah and appreciate the lifestyle that they had that are missing and it brings into question how the intensity of our relationship with God. Because if I know going into the Shemitah year that there will be enough food and my keeping of Shemitah doesn't seem to really impact whether there'll be enough food or not. If I know that there'll be enough water, and if I know that, certainly not all, but a lot of my problems, my medical problems, I can solve with a doctor, where is the place of my tefillah within this world? And with that thought, we'll turn to Rav Tavori. David ben Shmuel HaLevi is a name that might not mean anything to most people. Even if I would say we have David Ganz, that name might not mean much to people. But if I would say the Taz, the whole yeshiva world, all the rabbinic figures would know exactly whom I meant. The Taz 
Reb David ben Shmuel Halevi was born in Poland approximately in 1586 and he was nifter Shvat, the 26th of Shvat in Lvov in Poland in 1667. The Taz was born into a rabbinic family. His maternal grandfather was Rabbi Yitzhak Rebetzalel, who was a Rav in Ludmir. Rav David ben Shmuel Halevi's older brother was also a known Tamid Chacham, whose tshuvas are actually quoted by his brother. And Reb David, the Taz, grew up learning with his older brother, and later he learned under the tutelage, apparently private tutelage, of the Bach, of Abiel Serkish. We know that the Taz married the daughter of the Bach. The legend is that one day the Bach and Taz were learning together, and they came up to a point where the Rambam discussed how to write a Sefer Torah. Among the questions that arise in writing a Sefer Torah is the question, what do you do when you're writing a line and you have letters left over at the end of the line? When you write a handwritten letter, sometimes it looks near the end of the line and you're in the middle of a word. So in English, we have a custom of writing a hyphen and continuing the word on the next line. What do you do when you write a Sefer Torah? So the Ramam gives examples if you have a letter of five, uh, a word of five letters and you only have three spaces, if you have a word of seven letters and you only have four spaces, the Ramam gives examples of what to do. Then the Ramam gives an example of a, a very long word, and he said if you have a word of so many letters, then he tells you what to do. The Bach and the Taz were learning, and they looked at each other, but there is no such word in Chumash with so many letters that the Rambam quoted. Why would the Rambam mention the halacha of how to write a sefer, uh, in the Sefer Torah a word of so many letters when there is no such word in Chumash? The daughter of the Bach was walking by and she her- overheard the question and she said the Rambam and the, was not referring to a word in the in Torah at all. The Rambam was referring to a word that appears in Megillah's Esther, Ho'achash Darpanim. That is the longest word that is found in Megillah's Esther, and longer than any word in Chumash. Since a Megillah has to be written with the same laws of Sefer Torah, so the halacha that the Raman mentioned in connection with Sefer Torah would apply to Megillah as well. So that was what the Raman was alluding to. The two scholars, the Bach and the Taz, were amazed by the brilliant comment made by the daughter of the Bach. And the Bach, Bach looked at her and in a certain type of melitza, yeshiva type of language, turned to his daughter and said, Yafa adbiti kalavana. Referring to a statement in Shira Shirim, Yafa adbiti kalavana, you're as beautiful as the moon. And the Taz is reported to have said to the Bach, it's time for Kiddush Levana. Your daughter is Levana. It's time for Kiddushin. And we do know that the Bach indeed 
gave his daughter, the daughter of the ta- of the Bach, married the Taz. They continued learning in Krakow, and he was known to have been very poor. He went from Krakow to various towns where he was the Rav, a city called Potolich, which is apparently in Galicia and Poland, and he was the Rav there, but he still lived in great poverty. The Bach was almost shocked by the state of life of the Taz and the poverty in which he lived. Eventually, the Taz, Reb David, moved to other communities and more or less in about the year 1643, which is when he was 57, he was appointed to the town where the Maharsha has, ser- has served as the Rav before that. He became not only the Rav of the town, but he became the Rosh Hashiva of the town. At the time that he learned in that base Medrash, that he became the Rav of this town, he was very grateful to the people in town who supported him quite well. In the introduction to the Taz of Yeridea, he thanks the people of the town very much for providing him with the necessary financial means in which he could devote himself to his studies and write his own parish. The only part of the parish that he wrote by himself and printed in his lifetime was the Taz on Yeridea. Now the name of the book, Taz, is Tu Rei Zahav, Columns of Gold. The name seems to be a play on words of the Pasuk Torei Zahav. Torei Zahav is a, or is a phrase that's found in Shir Hashirim. Torei Zahav, a tor of uh, perhaps a column of gold, was amended by the Taz to write Torei Zahav, columns of gold. The name alluded to two things. One, that he felt his perush is to raise have lines of gold, but it's also a reference to the fact that he dealt greatly with the tour. Although his perush is based on the Shulchan Aruch of Rav Yosef Cairo, many of his comments, much of the learning, is based on an interpretation of the tour, and of course, the tour had a major perush of his father-in-law, of the Taz's father-in-law, of the Bach. The Sefer Taz on Yeridea became a Sefer that was classic and indispensable for learning Yeridea. Commentaries have been written on the Taz. The Primigodim on Yeridea is, deals a great deal with the Taz, especially in the section called Mishbet Zahav, when he talks about um, the Zahav, the word gold, is probably referring to the concept of the Turei Zahav. The Taz had a counterpart in Perush on Yeridea named the Shach. The Shach was actually younger than the Taz, and the Shach 
wrote his perush, and even though there was a disp- discrepancy in age, they were printed side by side in, in, in the standard issues, editions of the Shulchan Aruch and it became the source of smicha. In order for a smicha student to get smicha, he had to know Shulchan Aruch with Shach and Taz. It became an automatic phrase, Shach and Taz. In fact, in Europe, many of the, the smichas were given to people who knew Shach and Taz by heart. Part of the requirement was to know Shulchan Aruch, Shach and Taz by heart. In Yeshiva University, Rabbi Weiss taught Yeradeh for many years. And he, I think, knew Shach and Taz by heart. And he mentioned to me once that this was the custom of Europe, that everybody knew Shulchan Aruch, Shach and Taz. The Shach and Taz, of course, disagreed with each other many, many, on many occasions. And as is the want of Tamini Chachamim, sometimes their criticisms appear rather sharp. The refutation of the Taz was sometimes printed by the Shach in another sefer called Nukudos HaKesef. And the answers were given in various svarim, the give and take of Halacha. Again, in the introduction to Yeridea, the Shach points out that this discussion or machlokas between him himself and the Taz was completely the Shem Shemai. He quoted the Gemara in Kedushin on the Pasuk as Vahev Basufa. The Pasuk says, Al Kenya Yomar Basefa Melchamas Hashem Basufa. And the Gemara plays with the phraseology of the Pasuk and says, there is a Milchamos Hashem. There are times when we fight the battles of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as it were. We learn Torah and there's Milchamot. In fact, the word Milchamot Hashem is the name of the Sefer of the Ramban, on, which is printed in many standard editions of Shas in the back of the Gemara. Milchamos Hashem, where the, where the Ramban fought Milchamos Hashem. But then the Gemara continues to explain the Pasuk as Vahev Basufa. At the end, Vahev. Vahev they used as the word Ohev that they respect each other and indeed love each other at the end. The machlokes could be L'Shem Shemaim, yes, but at the end of the machlokes, they respect and treat each other with great respect and great love. And the Shach even says how the Taz visited him. And the Shach himself said that I treated the Taz with utmost respect. We saw two people, Tamri Chachamim, treating each other with great love and admiration, even though on many points they disagreed. The Shach and Taz on Yeridea are the classic commentaries on Yeridea. The Shach also wrote a perush on the rest of the Shulchan Aruch. The one that is most famous is on Yeridea. Secondly, would be the Shach, the Taz on Arachayim. This was not published at the same time as Yeridea, but it was published later. And it's interesting because the Sefer of the Taz on Yeridea is called more, is well known as the Taz, whereas the Sefer on Arachayim is more known as Mugging David, Reb David Ganz, 
Magen David, the protector of David, the protection through David, and the two classic commentaries on Shulchan Aruch and the big Shulchan Aruch, the standard printed Shulchan Aruch, are the Magen Avram of Rabbi Avram Gumbiner, and the Taz, the Magen David of the Taz. In fact, the frontispiece of many Shulchan Aruchs had the name Magine Eretz. The name of the book was actually called Magine Eretz. Who are the Magine Eretz? The Magine Eretz are the Magen David of the Taz and the Magen Avram of Avram Gubiner. And the Sefer was actually known by the name Magine Eretz. I was once present at a Shia that Rav Salavechik gave in Moria. And he quoted a Shulchan Aruch Arachayim. And he asked someone to bring him a Shulchan Aruch Arachayim. So one of the people went to the bookcase and he said to the Rav that he was looking for Shulchan Aruch, he couldn't find the Shulchan Aruch Arachayim. So the Rav said, I don't understand. I can see it from here. It's over there. The man went back and said, no, I'm sorry, there's no Shulchan Aruch. So the Rav said, no, that's it. And he pointed to the book and said, get that book. The man said, Rabbi, that's not a Shulchan Aruch. That's called Magin Eretz. This particular Shulchan Aruch had on the binding itself, the name of the Sefer was named for these two Svarim, for the Magin David and Magin Eretz. The person really had not been aware that this was actually a Shulchan Aruch. Although the Taz is known for his parish and Shulchan Aruch, Yaradeh primarily, and also for his perush on Shulchan Aruch Arachayim, he did write perush on Evan Ezer and Choshen Mishpat as well. They were printed much later. The, Choshen, the perush of the Choshen Mishpat was published by the Chacham Tzvi approximately in the year 1692 and another the part of the Evan Ezer was printed much later. Although these comments of the Taz on Evan Ezer and Chosha Mishpat were not printed in the same fashion and were not treated with the same utmost uh, in learning as the Shach Taz on Yeridea, Magin David and Magin Avram on Arachayim, nevertheless, they're very important pieces in the Shach and Taz, in the, I'm sorry, in the Taz, both on Evan Ezer and Yeridea. One of the most famous questions of how Kenyan Kesef works, for example, when you learn that Kesef is Kone, there's a famous question. If ke- how Kesef works, does it work because you paid for something and therefore it's yours? Or does it work because it's a mode of acquisition, like there are other modes of acquisition? And the question would be, if a person paid a down payment, but he didn't pay the entire money, in one respect he made a Kenyan, in the other respect he didn't pay for the object, would this be considered Kenyan Kesef? And this is a very famous machlokas between the Sma and the Taz, and a famous discussion that has uh, been learned in yeshivas from then till today, which is a based on a, on a Taz in Choshe Mishpat. So although the Taz and Choshe Mishpat and Yeridea and Choshe Mishpat and Evan Ezra are not as well learned and well known as the Taz on Arachayim and Yeridea, nevertheless they are classic interpretations that many, many of the Perushim are quoted and learned in Yeshivas. The Taz also wrote a Perush on Rashi, on Chumash, one of the uh, many Perushim that were written on Rashi was written by the Taz a sefer called Divrei David. Again, I don't know how well this sefer is known, but occasionally there are classic commentary, classic perushim that are known and quoted by, by uh, Rabbanim 
that are taken from this perush of Divrei David of the Taz. The Taz, as I said, was Nifter on a date this week of Chaf Vav Shvat in the year 1667. He, his Svarim are still learned until this day and the Svarim on Yeridea are still the basis for Smicha in almost every base Medrash. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. I think that what we'd... Going back to what we pondered before Rav Tavori's portion of this program, we asked, what is the place of the tefillot of an individual in a world where so much more, so, so much less is left up to chance than once was? And perhaps part of the answer is, in fact, bringing into question the initial assumption. It's true, probably, that once upon a time, the farmer who lived from, if not day to day, from year to year, that's probably still true today, felt a much greater dependence on God, what weather he would bring, and we don't feel that dependence. And it's true when there weren't medical explanations for deaths or illnesses or infertility that to the average person they probably felt much more dependent on God's decrees and decisions. Something that we feel less. But every once in a while in the world, I believe that God shakes the foundations of the world in ways that sometimes God needs to shake a lot harder. The first thing that comes to mind, of course, is the the recent tsunami in the Indian Ocean, where for all our technology was worth, more people died there than in Hiroshima and Nagasaki put together what we could have done to prevent it, whether they're still trying to have a a warning for tsunamis. We put ourselves, and we put ourselves in in the hands of God and understand that our fate ultimately is dependent on God. We have to dig deeper today. And in that sense, our connection to God and our dependence on God, for those of us who realize that there is such a connection, there is such a dependence, is a much realer one. Because with all the control that I have over my medical life, and with all the control that I have over my food and my water, the more we look deeply into our existence, the more we realize how much we depend on God. Because whatever is happening in Iran, vis-a-vis those of us who are living in Israel, depends on God. Whatever is happening with our health will ultimately depend on God. Our fertility And we have to dig deeper to make that realization. But we can't forget in our modern world where everything seems to have a solution that ultimately we are dependent on God and we have to dig deeper to find that dependence. And that's a challenge that Jews today and religious people in general 
have to dig much deeper to find that dependence on God. The dependence on God is still there. There's still too many places where we don't have control. And in those places, God comes forth and reminds us that we are dependent on Him. And it's tefillah, an authentic tefillah in today's world, is a deeper tefillah in that sense that it seeks out God and finds God in a world where God perhaps is more hidden. With that thought, may we all have good prayers and good tefillot that stem out of a realization that the person, not the person, pardon me, the being that we pray to controls our fate and has an unbelievable control and impact on our lives. Shabbat Shalom.